Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever found yourself doing something that you never thought you would do? For me, that happens not infrequently. Like yesterday, for example, I found myself in one of the plumbing aisles at Home Depot buying, among other things, plumber's tape, which is something that before yesterday I didn't know existed, but it turns out my hot water heater had been spewing hot water all over my basement the day before, and so I was there getting the things I needed to go home and play plumber and fix my hot water heater. What I had to do was about the easiest repair there might be for a hot water heater, but I still felt ridiculously proud of myself for having done it on my own. More significantly, uh, if you had told me when I was in high school or college that I would be doing what I am doing right now, that I would be standing where I'm standing, wearing what I'm wearing, in other words, that I would be a priest, I would not have believed you. I grew up in a denomination that ordained women, but my childhood church had only ever had one female associate pastor. And in college, I was part of a campus ministry of a denomination that doesn't support women's ordination. And that bothered me, but it only bothered me theoretically. So my senior year of college, my campus pastor hosted a discussion group about the topic of women's ordination. And he laid out the denomination's reasoning on the topic. And gently and graciously, he explained the way of interpreting scripture that lay behind the denomination's stance on the question. And I hadn't gone to that discussion intending to disagree, but at some point I found myself in tears. And I said, this isn't about me. I don't want to go into ordained ministry. I just don't understand why, if a woman genuinely felt that that's what God was calling her to do, you would tell her that she was wrong. If you had told that college senior, who was so emphatic that she didn't want to be a pastor, that some 20 years later she would be not just ordained, but the rector of a congregation, she probably would not have believed you. But it is amazing what God can do. And I should note that the pastor who led that discussion actually came to my ordination and received communion from me, which was an act of love and humility that still brings tears to my eyes. This month, we have been talking about spiritual transformation the process of spiritual growth through which we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So the first week we talked about how accepting God's unconditional love for us is the prerequisite for spiritual formation, that we change because God loves us rather than changing in order to make God love us. Last week we talked about how God is actually the one who enacts transformation in us. That spiritual growth isn't something that we accomplish, but it's something that we allow God to accomplish in us. 
And today we're going to explore how God transforms us in ways that we never would have anticipated or thought possible. That our spiritual transformation happens according to God's agenda and not ours. And that God can lead us into doing things that we never imagined we would do. And there is maybe no one in the entirety of scripture whose life reflects those truths more than Joseph. The passage we read this morning from Genesis comes at the very end of Joseph's life. And it's the final encounter that we have between Joseph and his brothers who had sold him into slavery as a young man. And in this encounter, we find Joseph saying to his brothers, Do not fear. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph not only forgives his brothers, but he promises to care for them and for their families, and he treats them with kindness and compassion. If ever there were a picture of what God can do to transform a person's heart, Surely this is it. But in order to fully appreciate how profound this transformation is, we need to take a step back and revisit the whole of Joseph's story. So you may remember that Joseph's father was Jacob, and you may remember that Jacob was a cheat. Although he was younger than his brother Esau, he deceived his father and stole the inheritance that was Esau's as the firstborn. Jacob then went on to have 12 sons for whom the 12 tribes of Israel were named. But Joseph, who was his 11th son, was Jacob's favorite. Genesis 37 tells us about how Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And Jacob gave Joseph a special gift, the famous coat of many colors. And Joseph did what many favorite children do, which is that he lorded it over his brothers. Joseph told his brothers about these dreams that he had. In one dream, he and his brothers were out binding sheaves of grain in a field. And Joseph's sheaf rose above his brother's sheaves, And their sheaves bowed down to him. In another dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bow down to Joseph. This is not subtle symbolism. (laughs) Joseph knew that he was his father's favorite, and he wanted his brothers to know it as well. And that went over about as well as you would expect it to. So one day, the brothers are out tending their sheep, Jacob sends Joseph to join them, and when they see him coming, the brothers hatch a plan against him. When he gets to them, they strip that robe of many colors right off of him, and they throw him into a pit. Then some travelers come along, and the brothers sell Joseph off to them, and those travelers take Joseph down to Egypt. Genesis 39 tells us that Joseph became a successful man in Egypt. Eventually, he ended up working for Pharaoh. Joseph was Pharaoh's steward. He was in charge of all that Pharaoh owned. 
Joseph also proved himself to be capable of interpreting dreams. And by interpreting dreams, he convinced Pharaoh to prepare for a famine that would come to Egypt. Eventually, Joseph became Pharaoh's right-hand man, the number two guy in all of Egypt, which isn't bad for someone who basically taunted his brothers into selling him into slavery. The famine that Joseph predicted did eventually arrive, and it affected not just Egypt, but the entire region, which included the area where Joseph's father and brothers lived. Now, because of Joseph's careful planning, there was grain available in Egypt during the famine. So Jacob sent his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And what follows is a long story of back and forth. When his brothers get to Egypt, they don't recognize Joseph. He sends them away. They come back. Eventually, he reveals himself to be their brother. And finally, they bring their father with them. And Jacob ends up dying in Egypt, surrounded by all 12 of his sons. Our reading today picks up just after Jacob has died. Joseph's brothers begin to worry that now that their father is no longer alive, will Joseph finally take revenge on them for having sold him into slavery all those years ago? So they send word to Joseph, begging for his forgiveness. And this is how Joseph responds. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. The narrative concludes, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Talk about transformations. Joseph's story is full of them. So not only has he gone from being a slave to nomadic traders to being the second most powerful man in Egypt, but he's also gone from being an arrogant little brother lording his dad's favor over his brothers to offering those brothers forgiveness and grace. He's gone from being someone who can only imagine his own good to becoming someone who can forgive the suffering he's experienced because of the good it eventually brought to others. If you had asked Joseph, who'd been thrown into a pit by his brothers, whether someday he would forgive them and even be grateful for the suffering that they caused him, he probably never would have believed you. But that is the power of God's transformation. Now, Joseph isn't the only one who's transformed in this story. So are his brothers. They go from being resentful, power-hungry siblings to humble, vulnerable men. They go from being people who are eager to assert their own power to people who are all too aware of their dependence on others. That is not an easy transformation. But like all the change that God initiates, 
Through it, they encounter compassion, kindness, and grace. The transformation that God works in the lives of Joseph and of his brothers is something so far beyond what they ever could have imagined, let alone what they might have asked for. I'm pretty sure that all the way through this story, both Joseph and his brothers found themselves doing things they never thought they would do. That's the power of God's ability to transform our hearts. We find ourselves doing and being things we never would have imagined. Which, at least for those of us who easily get stuck in what is versus what could be, that's incredibly good news. It's also incredibly challenging news. Because it means that the transformation that God works in our lives doesn't follow our plans, our timelines, or our agendas. It means that God chooses the what, the when, and the how of our spiritual transformation. Which means that we don't get to choose those things. It also means we don't have to. A couple of years ago, I got to be part of a retreat about the Christian practice of discernment that was led by Larry Warner. Larry is a seminary professor, he's an author, and he's a spiritual director. And probably more than anyone I know, he has an incredibly firm grasp, not only on how God works transformation in our lives, but how we can and must trust God to lead that process. And in that retreat that I attended, Larry taught several things that have changed the way I understand spiritual transformation. And more than that, they've changed the way I understand and experience God. So I want to share a couple of those things with you. First, I want you to think about confession. Not necessarily the right of confession, but the regular practice of confessing our sins to God in prayer. So that's something that we do each week together, and it's something that many of us probably do regularly in our own personal prayer life. And it is easy to come to these times of confession and feel like we need to rack our brains to think of everything that we have possibly done wrong in the last day or week or however long it's been since we last confessed our sins to God. It's easy for us to think that it's on us to come up with a full list of our sins, as though God couldn't possibly forgive anything that we have not confessed. And in a way, that seems like a very holy approach to confession, this desire that we have to do a ruthless moral inventory of our lives. But what Larry Warner taught me is that approaching confession in this way is just another means of our trying to control God's work in our lives. Because it makes us the arbiters of what, needs, what in our lives needs to be confessed and forgiven, It puts us in charge of determining what's wrong in our lives and what needs to be fixed. And it essentially gives God his marching orders for how he ought to work in our lives. 
What Larry invited us to in that retreat was a different way of approaching confession, and so of approaching spiritual formation more generally. What Larry suggested was that when we come to times of confession, whether on our own or with others, we ask God what God would like us to confess. We ask God to bring to our minds the ways that we have sinned that he is inviting us to acknowledge and ask for forgiveness for. And what that does is it turns the agenda for our spiritual transformation over to God. Rather than our coming to God and telling him what he needs to fix in us, we come to God and ask him to show us what he would like to change in us. It's a really challenging approach to confession because it invites us into a deeper level of allowing God to be in charge of our spiritual transformation. It's also an incredibly freeing approach because it encourages us into a place of trust in God. Trust that God knows what is best for us and trust that God is able to accomplish it. Larry writes this in his book on Christian discernment. He says, The good news is that when God shows you something that you need to work on, it's a cause for celebration and not condemnation. For when God reveals something to you, it's an invitation to greater freedom. It means you are ready to deal with this issue, and it means God is committed to partnering with you in this endeavor. You are ready to deal with this issue, and God is committed to partnering with you in this endeavor. What a shift that is from our usual ways of approaching confession in particular and spiritual growth in general. This perspective means that God is not only capable of enacting our transformation, it means that God brings about that change according to his timetable and our willingness to be changed. And so confessing our sins ceases to be an opportunity for condemnation and instead becomes an opportunity for freedom, for life and growth and transformation. Transformation that is likely very different from and far greater than whatever transformation we might have imagined for ourselves. A second and related thing that Larry Warner taught me during that retreat is that Most of the time, God tends to work on one thing in our lives at a time. So if you're anything like me, you have a whole list in your head of all of the ways that you fall short of who and what God surely wants you to be. And it's pretty easy to think that God wants you to work on all of those things stat. Because, after all, won't God be more pleased with us when we get better? But that is really not how God does it. We might think that we ought to work on being more generous or being less resentful or being more encouraging. And those are all probably good things for us to be. 
But it might just be that none of those things is the thing that God wants to focus on in our life right now. It just might be that, for example, God would want to work on increasing our self-compassion. Maybe because self-compassion is often the gateway to compassion for others. Or maybe just because God is sad to see us think about and talk to ourselves so critically. We who God made with such intentionality and love in his image. Either way, if we stay focused on our laundry lists of all of the things that we think God must want to change in us, we risk missing the one thing that God's heart is actually focused on for our good and for his glory. So what does all of this mean in terms of our spiritual transformation? It means a few things. It means that God is capable of working greater transformation in our lives than we could ever imagine on our own, just as he did for Joseph and his brothers. And it means that we can trust God to accomplish our transformation, to have the right priorities for what is important. We don't have to worry that God is disappointed in us because we haven't accomplished, spiritually speaking, what we think God thinks we should have accomplished. And we don't have to tire ourselves out trying to achieve all of the spiritual growth that we think a good Christian ought to be able to achieve. Instead, we can rest as we respond to God's invitation to trust him and to experience the freedom and the joy that his transformation brings. In a few moments at the end of the prayers of the people, we will come to our regular prayer of confession. And I'd like to invite you to take that as an opportunity to place your trust in God's work of transformation in your soul. So we'll spend a little bit more time in silence than we usually do, before we join the corporate prayer of confession. And in that time, I invite you just to ask God to bring to your mind what he wants you to confess. You can let go of any need you might feel to confess everything and instead put your trust in God and in his knowledge of what is needed for your spiritual transformation. In the final pages of Larry Warner's book on discernment, he writes this. God's goal is not that you simply arrive at a location. God is using the journey to mold and shape you, assuring that the person who arrives is different than the one who began the journey and is ready for the new invitations and challenges awaiting. That is the good news of God's approach to our spiritual transformation, that God will shape us into the people he created us to be. And so we can rely on God and not on ourselves for that transformation. And when we do, God will lead us into places and situations that we never would have imagined for ourselves 
for our good and for his glory. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.